to episode 38 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Brittany Lombas. We are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Brittany. Yes. It's been a month since you and I talked on the microphone. Yeah, it has. What movies have you been watching? Well, most recently, last night, I watched Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker. Yeah, you saw me review to that <laughs> at like 1 in the morning last night. <laughs> <laughs> I was just on one. I was just kind of browsing YouTube for full-length shit horror movies so I can go to bed peacefully. And I forgot what horror movie it was that I found. I wasn't really feeling it, so I clicked on the uploader's profile, and then he just had, like, a shit ton of, like, full-length, weird-ass 80s horror movies. It's crazy how much, like, VHS schlock is just hanging out on YouTube right now. Just chilling. Just for all of us to watch. So I was losing it, and I was going through the list, and I saw... Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. And I'm like, oh, that sounds so weird. I felt like it was going to deal with like a nursery school or something. So it's got another title too. It's like Night Warning. Yeah. That's a really like bland title. Like, like the Butcher one a lot more. Oh, it feels like more dirty. Yeah. More like horror dirty. So decided to watch it. Probably one of the fucking weirdest horror movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it mixes just everything. Homosexuality. Incest. Slasher shit. Yeah. Meat tenderizer murders. I mean, it was just like <laughs> everything. And um, Susan Tyrell's in it. She's so. also in Crybaby, right? Yeah, she's, I want to wreck it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Her performance was fucking badass. Like, I've never seen someone give that much in a movie that shitty. That was supposed <laughs> to be that shitty. Like, obviously, a movie called Night Warning or Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker isn't going to be an Oscar-winning film in any sort of way but she puts on this like badass performance where you're like shit girl you're forgetting what you're doing right now you know but basically just to kind of sum it up susan tyrell is aunt cheryl there's a horrible accident that leaves her sister and her brother-in-law dead so she becomes the guardian of her nephew billy who she has the hots for and he's growing up and he's getting ready to go to college so as like that becomes a reality to her that shit billy's gonna leave and i'll be alone she just loses it like she goes from being a somewhat average aunt that's a homemaker to just a fucking psycho neolithic woman just killing everyone that comes in between her and billy and god it's so good it's so good so that was my midnight movie and my 1 a.m. movie review. <laughs> that was the most recent thing I watched. On a lighter note, I watched Naked, which is a Netflix original movie starring one of the Wayne's brothers. Marlon Wayne's? I believe Marlon. I haven't heard of this. It's really good. Kind of has like this sci-fi element to it where he's getting married. He's a substitute teacher. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. And he's engaged to this very successful woman who's like a doctor. They are going to get married. And he goes out the night before to get like a couple of drinks and everything like that. And he wakes up butt naked in an elevator that's broken. And he gets out and he's butt naked trying to figure out how to get to his wedding. Everyone's at the church waiting for him. And he's like naked somewhere in the city trying to get to the church. And he has like a certain amount of time to get there and sort of do it right. And if he doesn't make it, he passes out, goes back into the elevator again. He's on like a loop. It's like a Groundhog's Day or... 
I yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. If he can't do it right, he just goes back in the elevator. <laughs> so it's like a slapstick comedy version yes. of that kind of it's, plot. It's very crazy because he starts to get it where like, he's like, all right, I know where I can get clothes at now. He sort of picks things up because it happens. I mean, it happens probably at least 20 times. So you watch him do this, do the same thing over and over again, like 20 times. It's crazy. So then he starts to memorize, like, you know, he, he has like a fight with some guy and he's trying to like steal his suit wear to his wedding so he remembers like how he blocks the punches for him so whenever he passes out the next time wakes up in the elevator and gets to the point where he's fighting him he knows like where the punch is coming from it sounds like a really complex version of like the hangover or something yeah really complex like sci-fi plot it was a very simple like comedy (laughs) right not a lot happens except for that so probably 95 percent of the movie is him waking up nude in the elevator and trying to figure out his life but it was entertaining i really liked it i'm really liking a lot of the netflix original movies that are coming out i really like yeah. okja and i don't feel at home in this world anymore i think those are their best two this year that i've seen so far but there's like so much yeah like i kind of started my own little list so i can go through them and it's just this massive amount like at first i thought it was gonna be like oh it's gonna be like 10 of them but i mean there's a crap ton but that's basically what i've really been watching lately well i've been to the theater a few times recently to see like movies that were actually very good but Mm. failed financially one of them is good time with robert pattinson Basically, he's this scumbag who ropes his mentally challenged brother into robbing a bank with him. Oh my god. And the brother (laughs) gets arrested and he doesn't. And he spends the rest of the movie trying to break him out of jail. And you can feel the cops closing in on him more and more as the movie goes on. And he just basically steps all over, like, women, children, people of color, like, people with mental illness. And just, like, exploits every person he could possibly come in contact with. For, like, the selfish goal of, like, breaking his brother out of jail. And it's really interesting tension in you wanting to see him succeed so he can save his brother from, like, navigating this prison system that, because he's, like, mentally challenged, he doesn't know how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And also wanting to see him fail because he's, like, hurting all these other people for his, like, single-minded goal. It's, like, this really tense movie. And it's got this, like, oppressively loud soundtrack from, I don't know how to pronounce the name exactly, but it's, like, Anathrix Point Never. It's this uh, synth act. They've been around for a while. I think, I think it might even just be one guy. But it's really like loud ambient synth noises. With this soundtrack and with the tense thriller aspects, it feels a lot like Drive. Except that instead of it being like bright, neon, pretty fantasy romance stuff like Drive has sometimes, mm-hmm. this one's all just like dispiriting grime and like brutal oppression and all these like systemic issues about like the prison system and hospitals and the way that poor people that can barely get around and you just feel like such shit watching it but in such a great way like it's i feel like like, shit right now just hearing about it it's one of the best movies i've seen all year but like oh you don't like walk out feeling necessarily great you feel like you've been through something you know is this still in theaters um maybe it failed miserably a24 released it um, I think this is their single worst, like, wide release oh. to date, which is very depressing because it's so good. And honestly, Robert Pattinson, fucking amazing in it. He plays a total scumbag. It's hard to get any sympathy out of him. But, but you have to be a good actor to play a piece of shit. Oh, man. You know? There's these really <laughs> brutal scenes where, like, Jennifer Jason Lee is this, like, highly manic, insane woman who is, like, dependent on him as someone to actually engage with her because everyone else just kind of like ignores her like ramblings and he exploits that 
for his like one goal, oh, and yeah. it's so hard to watch. Like it's, it's she's so good at playing those characters. Oh, she's great. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's her jam. If it is still out there, I definitely recommend seeing it big and loud in the theater because, like, I don't get shocked in movies often. And there were a couple things that happened in this movie where I had like my hand over my mouth and like my blood ran cold. Like Ooh. it like really shocked me in a couple like, moments. Physically affecting. Yeah, like yeah. That. Which I haven't That's really nice. felt that in the theater since that box cutter scene in Green Room, which is a pretty like disgusting uh, moment of gore. So definitely recommend that. And also because we are doing Schizopolis for our movie of the month this month, I also recommend going out to see Logan Lucky, which is Steven Soderbergh's new movie. Hmm. Basically, he's doing this, like, down-south version of his Oceans movies. Oh, wow. So it's Channing Tatum and Riley Keough and Adam Driver are robbing this North Carolina NASCAR racetrack. They're, like, robbing the money that people are taking for concessions there. And you (laughs) watch them put together this elaborate bank heist the way that, like, the Oceans... For hot dog money? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Uh, So you watch them make this elaborate heist to bust the money out. In the same, like, complicated Ocean's Eleven kind of way. A lot of movie stars, a lot of, like, really complex plot. But in this case, it's very Southern with, like, a capital S. And everything (laughs) has this sort of, like, laid-back vibe to it that you normally don't get in heist thrillers. I guess that would be a lot of money. Because, you know, I'm thinking, like, hot dog money. But if this is the NASCAR style track, I mean, those are $5 hot dogs. And then alcohol. And then alcohol. Right, hot dogs. Alcohol, chips. You're talking about thousands of people, too. Yeah, Yeah. so that is a lot of money, you're right. So maybe it's worth robbing. So yeah, it's like, even just thinking about that, like the difference between like watching movie stars in tuxedos robbing casinos in the Oceans movies versus these people in like camo sweatpants and Bob Seger t-shirts like robbing a NASCAR racetrack. Like you already kind of get the difference that this movie's working on. I actually like that idea a lot more than guys in suits and casinos. I've honestly never seen an Oceans movie. I just am aware of them. Me either. Yeah. This one drew me in. Just the idea of going to see Soderbergh doing this like down south comedy with Channing Tatum robbing a NASCAR track. Jesus Christ. And it's really fun to watch. I felt like the only lunatic in the theater laughing for a lot of Logan Lucky, but it is like a straightforward comedy in a lot of ways, especially in the first half where it's kind of like taking its time getting to the heist. It is really fun. And if you want to see him kind of like let loose in almost like a Coen Brothers kind of way, it's like Riley funny. Yeah. Very cool. Well, today we are going to be talking about a bunch of comedies. Yes. Brittany made me watch a comedy from Golden Globus. It's the first Canon Group film we've ever covered on this podcast, which I have no idea how we got this far without doing one before. And we're also covering a bunch of movies from our favorite filmmaker, John Waters. Woo! And I have no idea how we've never covered one of his films in this podcast before. I don't know. I was thinking about that the other day, but there's a lot going on with his movies. Yeah. So I think we've just, we've been building up to this point. This is also just kind of an appetizer. I want to do a whole bunch of episodes right. on his work because mm-hmm. I never get tired of watching his movies. Can we, you call this the John Waters appetizer episode? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the hors d'oeuvres. Hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> Hopefully we won't go on too long though because we literally could talk about him for like five hours. Yes, I'm going to have to like Reel it in. definitely be careful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, all that's coming up to you. Right, right now. now. Should I tell you how I got like this? I'll tell you anyway. Nobody really knows. All they know is that when my mother was carrying me, she was sniffing cool. When she was nursing me, she was sniffing cool. The day I was born, she was sniffing glue. So now every time I have a glass of milk, I taste glue. Every time I lick a stamp or an envelope, I'm suddenly back at my mother's bosom. Me 
And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth, recommending films to each other. This time it was Brittany's turn, mm-hmm. and she made me watch a film called Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. What is that? <laughs> what was this thing we watched? Still not quite sure. I had initially watched Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype years ago. I believe I rented it on VHS from my local movie rental place from the town I grew up in. And I was pet sitting for a friend, and she had the satellite thing you put on your tv to catch like local channels but it also has like some other like movie channels that you can kind of catch and this was playing on loop on comet tv so i watched it three times oh god that might be the most anyone's ever seen this movie i think so and it's just it's such a uncomfortable movie it kept like pulling me in in a really weird way so definitely want to make brandon watch it so, Dr. Heckle, Mr. Hype is a 1980 film by director Charles B. Griffith, and he's written a couple of films, well, Roger Corman films, like Bucket of Blood, Little Shop of Horrors. So, he's not some sort of small-time shit director, but he was given this opportunity for Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, and he was only given, like, a couple of months to write the movie, direct it, edit it film it, like all that within just a couple of months. So it's a really, really sloppy movie. (laughs) Um, It's just kind of like this fucked up puzzle that's put together, but it's great. I know they were supposed to like have it go to movie theaters and because it was so rushed and didn't come out the way they wanted, like it went straight to cable instead, which is kind of strange. Right. And it's got um, Oliver Reed in it. He's the main character. So this is a big name guy that's in this straight to TV fucking movie. But essentially, um, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype is a reversal of the Jekyll and Hyde tale. Um, and it stars Mr. Oliver Reed as a podiatrist that's a monster. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he's got like green clay on his face. <laughs> and, and bad teeth. And bad teeth. And he walks with like a limp. Very, you know, Dr. Jekyll. But he's very, very sweet, but he's very depressed because of how ugly he is. So he tries to commit suicide. <laughs> By cutting off his head with giant scissors? Was this like plan for killing <laughs> he himself? He tried, right, but he just didn't go through with it. He works in this sort of medical facility that's very insane where, you know, he's the podiatrist and then there's a doctor who tickles people where he has feathers and he gets like these girls to go in his office and he just like tickles their armpits with it. And then there's another doctor who develops a serum for fat women to make them thin. And Dr. Heckle basically drinks a shit ton of it to kill himself because only a drop is supposed to be used. And if you use more than a drop, it just like destroys all your body's matter and you disappear so he's like oh f it and he drinks the whole thing and he becomes mr hype who's this handsome devil oliver reed who while being very attractive is a total piece of shit who's very violent and rapey um yeah he's very obsessed with being the most handsome person right and having people tell him that yeah he needs to hear (laughs) it from everybody and if not he will kill them he kills people in the coolest way possible just a cut like two murders that happened in the film that i really enjoyed was He's um, sort of trying to seduce this one woman and then he puts her toe in a lamp and it electrocutes her. 
via Home Alone style, Home Alone 2 style. That murder was my biggest laugh in the movie. It was him like electrocuting her, her big toe, her toe. With, with a like raw um, electrical circuit from a lamp. It was just the base of it. Like there wasn't a bulb in it. And her hair gets all frizzy and like a fro yeah. shape and her tongue is wagging out of her mouth. It's it's, it's very so silly. Crazy. And the other one I really liked was um he has a a tiger rug and he was using it as a puppet with this woman and she didn't like sort of validate him being the most handsome man in the world so he kills her with his tiger rug. Oh, Brandon, <laughs> what did you think about this movie? <laughs> it's weird like I can't say that this is a good movie that I like enjoyed watching. <laughs> And it's supposed to be this like slapstick comedy, mm-hmm. and a lot of the jokes aren't funny in the way where like you're laughing out loud. I was more just like in shock that the thing I was watching existed. Like it's <laughs> one of those movies where like its own existence is the most interesting thing about it. Apparently, Oliver Reed was like far from their first choice to play mm-hmm. uh, Heckle and Hype. I think they wanted like Dick Van Dyke. Yes, Dick Van Dyke. Initially. And <laughs> the reason they wanted Dick Van Dyke is because it was supposed to be this over-the-top slapstick, kind of nutty professor right. kind of uh, horror comedy. And instead, what they got was Oliver Reed doing this, like, almost Shakespearean acting. <laughs> he was way too serious for yeah. it. And he has all these, like, inner monologues about, like, how it's so tragic that he's so ugly. <laughs> and if only women could see his true self, then they would fall in love with him. But all they see is this ugly podiatrist. And then later when he is the handsome Oliver Reed, uh, which we could talk about how handsome this man actually is. Mm -hmm. Some people find him very gorgeous. I don't know if that translates to the 2010s the way it did in the 70s. No. When he's in his like handsome normal Oliver Reed state, uh, he also has inner monologues and they barely shift. It's just a slightly more villainous version of the earlier ones where he's just like, okay, now that I have the looks... Uh, people should be falling all over me. And there isn't really a huge difference between those two characters uh, on the inside. It's just that one of them like kills people and one of them is pretty apologetic when he's actually talking. Right. So the movie's like a little confused in how to differentiate the two sides of his personality. And it just has all these weirdo touches that feel like they're just sort of thrown out of nowhere. The world they're living in doesn't feel exactly real. Right. Uh, he goes to this burrito shop called bunny burritos there's this (laughs) radio news announcement about like a rash of suicides that a shock jockey host is kind of talking about in this like jokey way almost like in heathers or something where like reality is like slightly heightened in this cartoonish way except that oliver reed is very grounded he just doesn't get it yeah part of me just feels like they were probably like all right like loosen up a little bit and he's like i shan't loosen up (laughs) But he does, I think, do a good job as Dr. Heckle with the change in accent. He's very like New York. I can see that. And he kind of like does the goofiness really well. But as the Mr. Hype, he just kind of lost the point of it. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing this, but it feels like the movie is sort of like at odds at its own point. Like, I like the idea of this really nice monster. Only really a monster because he is like physically unpleasant to look at and then he becomes this handsome man who feels entitled to everything immediately like he wants people to immediately want to fuck him and say he's the most beautiful person they've ever met and i think there's some good social satire in there about Mm -hmm. like handsome people feeling they're owed the world just by being handsome right but at the same time the movie like rewards hype basically he's a podiatrist with a foot fetish so he has all these like women come in and like examines their feet 
And this one particular woman who he stalks at the bus stop, uh, he's like, oh, your feet are so gorgeous. And he's nervous about talking to her, but the movie sort of eventually proves this point. Like, over the time, she gets to know him as a person and isn't shocked by his appearance anymore. Right. And she loves him. And no matter what he does, and even when she discovers that he is this other killer character as well, she forgives all of this because she knows that he's a good guy deep down. She forgives it in, like, five seconds. And that, like, (laughs) but I'm a nice guy, so I deserve to get the girl ethos is like kind of at war with the other satire about like the handsome man so it's like the movie is very scrambled in its like politics Mm -hmm. which doesn't make it like an abhorrent object or anything it's just when you're watching you're like what is going on like what it almost feels like three different people wrote the script without consulting with each other yeah and like it's just like this weird mess it's messy yeah for sure i really liked how there's a bunch of like effects (laughs) Like, whenever he turns in back to Dr. Heckle from being Mr. Hype, Mm -hmm. like, his big, like, monster foot busts out of his shoe, and there's, like, this sort of... It reminds me of um, bed knobs and broomsticks whenever they put the knob on the bed, and there's, like, all these, like, crazy psychedelic colors and flashes. Uh, Strobe lights. Yeah, strobe lights, and all that sort of happening, and he's turning back into Dr. Heckle. So that's pretty fun. Like, there are really, really fun parts, Mm -hmm. but then... There, like you had said, like sometimes it gets like really, really serious and weird yeah. when it really shouldn't be, and sometimes it's very slapsticky, and then sometimes it's just like a very uncomfortable, funny, and there's just a lot of shittiness towards women. Yeah, in definitely. the movie too. Ugh. It's strange, like <laughs> very weird. How often it does work, though. Like mm-hmm. when he finally has his big meeting with the lady he is crushing on, where they sort of talk about their lives for the first time. He gives this really long monologue about how he looks the way he does because his mother sniffed glue the entire time she was pregnant with him and when she was breastfeeding. Uh, So like when he like drinks milk, he he smells glue. Uh, There is like great comedy in that over the top monologue being read in Oliver Reed deadpan. Like Mm -hmm. that part works so well. But then there are other parts where there is no over the top comedy. Right. And it's just him reading these like straight lines. And it feels like the movie wants to be that ridiculous all the time. It just, like, isn't. But like you said, like, the actual, like, monster effects, like, when they're transforming and there's, like, these strobe lights. And then it gets in this weird idea that the potion the man made to make the uh, ladies thinner and heckle handsomer, it, like, changes your chromosomes to, like, match what you want, what you want to see in yourself. Right. Just kind of a weird idea. Like, it could have been played to better effect, maybe, but... So, I do have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Something that... I I never looked it up, so I don't know, but at the very end, he keeps going back and forth and back and forth from heckle to hype, heckle to hype, and then he turns into this, like, organ. What organ is that? Was that an intestine? It looked almost like a rectum. Because it is a circle. Maybe it's just like a giant asshole is like what he turned out to be at the end. Oh, that that makes a lot of sense. It was a butthole. It's super icky. (laughs) Well, you're talking about the last like 20 seconds of the movie. Yes. That like exclamation point of an ending is very strange. Like it's not just that he flips back and forth between heckle and hype. He becomes like... 50 different people throughout that moment. Right. Like he, like women, it was sort of like the black and white music video from Michael Jackson, <laughs> but in a 1980s trash version. With a strobe light. With a strobe light. <laughs> sometimes that turns he turned into an anus. Sometimes he turned into two people in that segment. <laughs> yeah. That was a sort of what the hell, let's just do it kind of thing. I like it 
for the fact that it's just an icky feeling movie. It just feels like gritty, like the dirt under your fingernails on the film. Yeah, Take a it bath. Is- it is very uncomfortable, after. especially like at the end, mm-hmm. the tickle fetish doctor oh, takes a uh, a serum dose as well, mm-hmm. and he becomes his true self, which is like a beautiful woman, and him and Hype start making out uh, while Hype is handsome, and uh, then there's a little bit of gay panic when they both switch back, and it's like two men making out in the car, and uh, they're both horrified by each other, which is kind of gross, but it's not as gross as it could be. You would think that part would be like the most transphobic thing like in the world, but I do remember this like '90s comedy called Doctor Jekyll and Miss Hyde that used to play on TV a lot, hmm. and it was basically that two-minute stretch played for feature length. Like this doctor took a serum and he would turn into this like oversexed woman. Wow! Uh, and it is so fucking offensive. I watched the trailer last night after watching Heckle and Hype because I was like, oh, this reminds me of a movie I watched as a kid. It is fucking horrifying. There's a lot of like (laughs) comedy films that were made in that Jekyll and Hyde style. So there's a film you just talked about that I had no idea existed. And then there's another one with Cassandra Peterson that's like Jekyll and Hyde at it again. Mm, Where she's like a sexy nurse. Yeah, there's a good bit of them. I will say I was afraid when you gave me this just based on the title it's an 80s movie and it says mr hype i was afraid that it was a white man who took a serum and became like a cool black guy i would never ever recommend that to anyone well the premise of like the original story has that like malleable i mean we mentioned the naughty professor earlier too it's kind of the same thing it has like a malleable open-ended realm of possibilities like you could apply that transformation into so many different things and I like the idea of reversing and playing with it. And this movie does that. But yeah, there's so many ways it could go wrong. <laughs> Especially when you start playing with like gender and race and stuff like that. Just things that are like sensitive topics. Yeah. <laughs> this one sidesteps a lot of that. It's not that gross in that way. But it is like... But it an, approaches it. It does. And you mentioned earlier that he's like very rapey. Right. The, but it should be noted that he dies a virgin at the end of the film. Right. So it's not like he actually, like, rapes people and that's, like, played for laughs. So, like, there's other ways it could be even grosser than it is. Right. I didn't necessarily laugh through a lot of the film, but I was just more in shock that it was a thing that existed the whole time. Which, there's a value to that. (laughs) It's a good piece of shit. It's an interesting novelty. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Like, in no way is this a fucking great film, but it's definitely something you should watch once just to get, like, the insanity of it. To know it exists. And it's interesting that there's at least two movies, I'm thinking of Ken Russell's The Devils, where the entire premise is hinged on people instantly wanting to fuck Oliver Reed the second they see him. When he doesn't- He has a lot of sexy movie roles. It's weird that he's like such a (laughs) sex symbol of his time. And I mean, maybe there are a lot of people who still look at Oliver Reed and like, that dude is like so hot. But he just looks like a- uh, A grandpa? Yeah, he looks old in this for sure. Like a- He's like leathery. Right, all these girls that he's trying to get with or these women are in their 20s and he's obviously in his (laughs) mid-50s, you know? So not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just interesting because if that was reversed... You know, and it was a woman trying to do the same shit. It wouldn't have played out as well, I guess. And and apparently he was like a huge asshole in real life. So it's funny for this movie to have this like, handsome guys can get away with murder kind of tagline. (laughs) uh, When it's it's kind of like making fun of his real life personality for doing that as well. He's sort of like a George Clooney type. Yeah. Like moms dig him. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) 
Divine, are you a lesbian? Yes, I have done everything. Does blood turn you on? It does more than turn me on, Mr. Vader. It makes me cum. And more than the sight of it, I love the taste of it. The taste of hot, freshly killed blood. Could you give us some of your political beliefs? Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. So this past Mardi Gras, we started a new crew where we dressed like Divine. And there were four of us there. Uh, former host of the show, C.C. Chapman, uh, me and Brittany, and our friend Virginia Ruth. Virginia is returning as a guest on this episode after coming on our Witch Movie for Kids last October. Yeah, it's been almost a year. Almost a whole year. Today we're having you join us because we're going to be talking about John Waters films. Um, They just did a series at the New Orleans Museum of Art where they played five John Waters movies over the course of five Fridays. It started on my birthday and then it ended over a month later. (laughs) It was a very strange journey. Virginia made it to at least two of them, right? To Crybaby? Definitely to Pink Flamingos. I feel like that was a fantastic birthday for you with the impersonator that was there and just like the energy of the crowd. It was fantastic. Seeing it on the big screen was great. Yeah, for Pink Flamingos, they had flamingos on the lawn in front of the museum. Oh, that's cool. And then they had CCV Dementh is the uh, divine impersonator. She was also at Bushwig earlier this year. And I think you saw her at Waterworld the Musical. Waterworld the Musical, she plays a sea monster. Puts on quite a performance. That was a once in a lifetime. Opportunity in its past. But anyway, maybe we'll be revived. Well, they had New Orleans' foremost divine impersonator uh, introducing the movie, which was nice. I guess that's a good place to start as any. Just Pink Flamingos on the big screen in a museum setting. It's not the nicest theater where they played the movies. It's kind of weird to go pay money, like full ticket price, to watch something we own on DVD played in that same format. Like, you're mm-hmm. not watching a film print. You're not watching any kind of restoration. It's, yeah. It's just straight the DVD copy that most people who would own it own. But it is a film that every time I see it live with an audience, I enjoy it even more. Absolutely. It was a blast. How many times have you seen Pink Flamingos besides that in the theater experience? Maybe two or three. Definitely twice. And the first time I was not definitely not sufficiently prepared had to pause it multiple times get people get people to like witness it with me i was like have you seen this do you want to do you want to be here with me while we watch this but yeah i i love watching people who've known about this i don't know could have googled the plot of this movie leaving i don't know maybe 10 times during the course of the movie yeah different people that left i've seen it several times in the theater and it's crazy that it's almost 50 years old now i think Mm -hmm. uh it's crazy that people still walk out in disgust in the middle of it every single time I watch it with an audience because they're not fully prepared for the gross-out stuff. Yeah, But that's what it's like known for, so it's weird. Why would you pay to go watch a movie? And that's not like the highest value John Waters has for me. Like, Mm -hmm. I know Brittany and I would both count him as like our favorite artist, if not favorite person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's a brilliant... Yeah, and it's just weird that I feel apologetic about this movie because it's the one he's most known for. Like, if you say... John Waters, people immediately think to Divine Eating Dog Shit as the sort of of epilogue. Yeah, Yeah, and it's not like the highest form of art for him. So I've kind of apologized for this movie. I'm like, oh, it's not that good. You should skip to these other ones. But the last time, just watching that Noma and that crowd, and most people were enthusiastic even though some people left. I left thinking, like, this actually is one of his best movies, and it is so fun. 
How do you hold it in your like John Waters catalog? It was wasn't the first John Waters movies I saw, but I remember the first time I saw it, I rented it from Major Video out in Metairie. It was on the wall with all the cult classics, so I was just kind of like grabbing a handful of movies, and I'm like, oh, this looks cool, and I'm like, oh, it's you know, Cryberry Hairspray Guy, and then I watched it. And I remember telling my roommate, I'm like, I will never watch that fucking movie again. It was so <laughs> disgusting. And then I watched it again <laughs> a few years later. And then I, it's like totally one of my favorites now. Like it gets better the more you watch it. I've always loved trailer parks. Like I've always just been obsessed with trailer parks and trailers. So the whole family situation <laughs> of pink flamingos is like my dream living situation. <laughs> it seems like that dynamic the family living in the trailer is pretty much the only thing in the movie that resembles a plot Mm -hmm. uh you have these two warring families uh and the competition that they're having with each other is to establish who is the filthiest person alive uh in one trailer you have divine is the reigning champion is the filthiest person on the planet right uh she has a mother who lives in a crib and demands eggs at all hours of the day edie the egg lady played by edith massey and she also has two kids who have this sort of like incestuous rape fantasy they play out with like town girls that they bring back to the trailer. Uh, they are the roughest part of the movie. But their competition is this other family, uh, Raymond and Connie Marbles, uh, played by Mick Stoll and David Lockery, who are like other regulars to the John Waters oh, crew. Yeah. Uh, they are running this operation where they pick up hitchhikers, keep them locked in a basement and get them pregnant, and yeah. then sell their babies... <laughs> The resulting babies to lesbian couples on the black market. <laughs> Honestly, out of all the gross shit that happens in Pink Flamingos, I think the grossest thing to me that till this day kind of makes me like, okay, I don't want to fucking watch this. Whenever um, the girls are getting like forced impregnated with that syringe in that oh, dungeon, yeah. it's so it's like still super That's, hard for me to yeah, watch it. Yeah, I'd have to say that that kind of takes the cake. Like, I'd rather <sighs> see a fairly clean butthole sing at me. Right, eat all the shit you want. Lick the surfaces... Yeah. I mean, those are like, you know, kind of meant to grocery up, but there's something like really beyond fucked up about the like forced impregnating. I think it's the uh, murder of the chicken during the sex play. Uh, yeah. How come I, how come that's grosser than the chicken for me? That's how I, yeah. I, there's a real life chicken that's sort of like smashed into someone's groin and like yeah. killed on screen. Right. Like she's getting off to watching her brother fuck Cookie Mueller with a chicken yeah. between them. But I know like they ate the chicken after and they bought it from a farmer in real life. But at the same time, it's, you see this little chicken's head and it's like, I don't think he wanted to die by getting fucked. I also never want to see real blood on screen. Like, I can watch all the gore in the world, but, like, something, like, actually violent happening, like, it's not fun for me. And there's all those yeah, little not... chickens outside your house. Oh, yeah, that's in true, that too. Lot. So yeah. I was I saw them before I came here, and I thought of that little guy. Okay, so those two things, like, the syringe, turkey baster, the impregnations, and the chickens, feel very much part of the grindhouse horror circuit mm-hmm. that this movie's sort of participating in. Mm-hmm. That, like, early 70s gross-out, like, rape exploitation cinema i feel like it's easier to stomach in his work than it is in other people's Mm -hmm. in multiple maniacs there's a rape scene there's a couple there's one where divine is raped by a giant lobster though that's like the centerpiece and i'm usually very sensitive to those in movies and for some reason he makes it funny it's not funny in this one but it's not quite as like horrific to me as like some other stuff i've seen as well it's a hard line to like define but he's definitely participating in that like (laughs) <laughs> trying to shock you, trying to get away with whatever he can. 
I feel like the victims or survivors or whatever are, like, talking more throughout these scenes sometimes. Like, rather than the perpetrator, like, taking up 90% of the, mm-hmm. the dialogue. I can see that. And that, and I feel like that can kind of ham it up because it's like when the, the character is like, Oh my god, are you gonna do something? Get me out of here! What are you doing? Ah! Like, she just won't shut up. I feel like he's almost kind of making fun of those scenes in other horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movies that kind of like I spit on your grave and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You're right. It's like a quieter, like real feeling thing mm-hmm. where everyone in his movies are non-actors with these over-the-top Baltimore accents. Yeah. Where like just them talking is kind of inherently funny. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so yeah, them talking the whole time, like get that thing away from me. Yeah. Like it is sort of naturally funnier, yeah. but it is like the two sore spots in the movie are those two scenes. A lot of it, I feel like, does come across as progressive. Uh, You do have all these, like, queer people just sort of, like, acting almost like a sideshow where they're, like, freaking out American audiences just by being themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, The singing butthole from earlier. Oh, I love that. It's basically a prolapsed anus played to, like, Papa Uma Mao. That, that, (laughs) Uma Mao, Mama Uma Mao Mao. Fantastic. Fucking awesome. That's at Divine's birthday party where the <laughs> marbles call the cops on the revelers who are basically these like weird Baltimore punks. And when the cops show up, everyone at the party kills and eats the cops with their like bare hands. That's a really triumphant, glorious scene. There's like murder throughout the movie, but that's like really... It's kind of the centerpiece. It's her yeah. whole birthday celebration. And I feel like more of the movie tends to that side. Like you kind of celebrate Divine shoving butcher yes. meat up her dress yes. uh, while she's shoplifting. Or when Raymond Marbles is out freaking out women by flashing, he gets flashed by a trans woman to like sort of like throw it back in his face. And our audience like erupted in applause for that moment. Yeah. And the movie feels like that. It's like kind of like celebratory <laughs> yeah. of these characters. In this kind of awesome way. Wish I would have been there for the show. I have you ever seen it um, on the big screen before? I have not. They used to play it at Britannia a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like on the midnight movie circuit for a while. But it, I just constantly missed it for shitty reasons. But yeah, never saw it on the big screen. Before we move on, like one thing worth mentioning about this is that in 72, this is like very early for the punk content in the film like Raymond and Comedy Marbles have these like bright colored hair people are wearing leopard print and playing this like rockabilly raunchy kind of music and at the time counterculture was more skewed to like folksy Mm -hmm. hippie music and like feel good free Mm -hmm. love kind of vibes (laughs) and this is a much more aggressive kind of uh, it was like an anti-hippie Almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is I really think, fun. I think he definitely pokes fun at hippies and sort of the which yuppie, yippie. He does through all yeah. his movies still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something that's interesting, I was watching some deleted scenes from Pink Flamingos the other day, and the whole idea of Divine being sort of undercover in the trailer park as Babs, there were a couple of scenes that were deleted that really made that more prominent in the movie, where... Divine sort of writing an autobiography and talking in this tape recorder about like all of her daily experiences. I still don't understand why they really cut that out and they didn't play on that more. I kind of like that they do cut it because it's not, that's like pure plot and the movie really doesn't have a lot of plot. It would have made the movie make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The way it is now, it's almost like a series of pranks like Jackass or something like. Yes. Like for Divine's birthday, the marbles send her a human turd in the mail 
And she flips out. She's like, this is an attack on my divinity. And then the movie <laughs> ends with the coda of her eating dog shit, which is like the thing most people remember yeah. about it. So there's right. a really big disconnect there with like her being offended by someone sending her a turd yeah. and then her gleefully eating a turd off the street just to like prove how filthy we, she is. You know, specifically the turd that she was sent in the mail had been aged for many months. <laughs> right. Like I've been, we've been saving this. Yeah, like when they're yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Maybe the point is like, get the fresh shit. It's okay to eat that. And apparently they fed that dog like just pure steak. For weeks before oh, no. it shit, so that the shit would taste more protein full, I guess. <laughs> she looked like she still had a hard time with it. <laughs> right, I know you have to. And it was a sort of gloopiness. Like, after watching that, like, when I take my dog out and she shits, I just kind of, like, I would never put it on my mouth. Because you never know what the consistency is going to be like. Oh, no. You know? You never know. It's kind of sad that someone I would consider, like, the greatest drag queen of all time is mostly reduced to that one stunt at the end of this movie. Like... Right. Her work in this female trouble and polyester are like really over the top, like beautiful, just like he- heightened, <laughs> heightened levels of camp. Like uh-huh. the fact that she builds herself as like divine, like yeah. the most divine creature that's ever walked the earth. Yes. It's so great. Uh, also in, in Multiple Maniacs, which I just saw for the first time last year, she basically turns that act into this sort of like kaiju like monster. Like she like <laughs> walks down the street and the cops have to be set to like mow her down because she's like a threat to the world. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of sad that people are like, oh, that's that lady that ate dog shit. Yeah, like, like she's so much more. Yeah. She also ate other stuff too. But when we did a divine themed Mardi Gras crew this year, mm-hmm. all of our throws were like pieces of shit. And we had like people flamingos look. strapped to the cart. It's very iconic. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel bad for how long I've sort of dismissed this movie as like not his best work because I really do feel like it is kind of like a midnight movie kind of masterpiece like it plays very well to midnight crowds for their programming at Noma they skipped over Desperate Living and Female Trouble which Mm -hmm. is part of the same trash trilogy and they went straight to Polyester in 1981 for the next movie you sort of miss Divine playing out this original persona that she had created to instead do this sort of like over-the-top Douglas Sirk housewife act. The opening shot of the movie is this pan from the exterior of her suburban home up the stairs to her primping and hairspraying at a vanity mirror. And it's already more complicated than any shot John Waters has had at any point of his career up until that point. Um, And you get sort of the sense that polyester is him transitioning from freak out movies like multiple maniacs into like real movies quote unquote do y'all think they should have played the two in between i think they should have at least played female trouble because that's such like a iconic divine art film yeah yeah (laughs) it's just sort of showing us like divine and pink flamingo straight to like a movie you can kind of bring your mom to see and it would be okay yeah polyester kind of straddles that line a little Mm -hmm. bit it's it's both a little bit of pink flamingos and a little bit of where he would go with like cereal mom and hairspray and stuff like that where it's still shocking absolutely but i feel like maybe he's just like eh, let's just try to weasel our way into (laughs) the mainstream film industry with some weird shit which i think's pretty smart it works Um, i think polyester is probably my favorite john waters movie it does represent his whole career pretty well like there's a pretty wide range of things he does Mm -hmm. from the multiple maniacs era to like i guess dirty shame was his last film i think it it kind of encapsulates 
everything. It's like that turning point, I think. Like, this is the first where his style sort of transfers into, like, you know, what we see in Hairspray and then Crybaby and what eventually comes Dirty Shame. But he's still, like, wearing his influences on his sleeve. Like, uh, in Pink Flamingos, there's all this, like, Russ Meyer kind of stuff with, like, really close-up shots of headlights and grills of, like, Cadillacs. Mm -hmm. And then also Divine's, like, oversized breasts uh, in the red dress. And then in this one, in Polyester, there's... The William Castle influence, who's a really big fan of, like, gimmickry, kind of like the Tingler, tingler yeah, mm-hmm. where they, like, shock you in the theater and stuff. And this one, he has uh, Odorama, which is, like, a yes. self-invented version it's of like Smell-O-Vision. Yeah, it's uh-huh. a scratch-and-sniff card. I have one. I haven't used it yet, oh, though. Wow. I wonder if you ever should. I know. Part of me is, like, I wonder if it'll go away, like, the fart smell and stuff like that. Like, I'm, How you know, long can oh, that be good for? I want to be in the best place in my life before I scratch that thing. You're going to be on your deathbed like, one last thing. Give me the other off the card. <laughs> um, oh, I should write that in my will. And then in this one, they have Russ Meyer posters in the porno theater office. Oh, so there's the, like literally like movie posters right. for you to see. <laughs> the Faster Pussycat posters in there. I remember that. And then he's also doing <laughs> Douglas Sirk like intentionally. There's like 1950s women's pictures where it's a melodrama about this woman's struggle to like hold her family together despite societal pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this one, the pressure is coming from her husband is a porno theater operator who publicly embarrasses her by promoting his stuff and cheating on her with Mick Stoll. The who, women spit on her at the shopping mall. She's like the scourge <laughs> of the town. Uh, her mother is stealing money directly from her and her children are degenerates. One is Lulu who basically is a teenage like hussy type character. Mm-hmm. With hot pants. With hot pants. And her son is a drug addict who is addicted to like huffing like spray paint like and stuff and glue. Glue sniffer. He also is a foot fetishist who stomps women's feet in public. Can we talk about Dexter for a hot second? Because I found something really cool out. So lately I've been really interested in Jerry Brudos, who is known as the shoe fetish slayer. He's this guy who had an intense shoe fetish, like, growing up, and his mom, like, was really violent towards him, like, to get the shoe fetish out of him. Mm. So he becomes this sort of shoe fetish killer where he has, like, piles of fucking women's underwear and shoes, and, like, he'll he'll strangle women and steal their shoes and, like, whack off while he wears them. And I think he actually killed a woman and took her, her foot off and put it in a shoe in display in his, like, messed up basement. So... When John Waters was, I guess, creating the character of Dexter, he was heavily influenced by Jerry Brudos. Sick. So that's why that shoe fetish exists in the I, film, is because he was so interested in Jerry Brudos. I think he intentionally does that to shock people, too, because in... There's um, a lot of serial killer references, and Manson family, and Yeah, I was about to say, in, in Pink Flamingos, there's just a scene that only exists for Divine to walk by a giant graffiti sign that says Free Tex Watson, who was right. one of the Manson family killers. <laughs> yeah. Who I think he was, like, kind of prison pals with, um, John Waters. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Of course. So this one has more of a plot than Pink Flamingos, right? Oh, like, absolutely. Divine is suffering under the pressure and once her husband leaves her and starts harassing her in public, uh, she spirals into alcoholism and her best friend who used to be her maid, Cuddles Kavinsky, played by Edith Massey. Uh, their friendship is just the ultimate friendship goals, I think. Cuddles and Francine. This is Edith Massey's, like, the role of her career. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> she speaks in, like, terrible French. 
She's like, you, ma'am, are a couchon, and that means pig. Uh, or she's like, a regular joie de something, something. Yeah. Like Forget what she's, how she says it. And she's planning for her debutante ball. She, she has some of, like, the best lines in this movie. Just like, Francine, it's a beautiful day. Like, she's just <laughs> yes. full of life, yes. and when, oh, I love her. When Francine's hitting rock bottom and puking on herself, she goes, you're so cute when you're tipsy. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> But I think what this movie does is it takes, like, the freak show to suburbia. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're looking at multiple maniacs and female trouble and stuff, these people are all living to the side. Yeah, or, you know, messed up utopias. Yeah, they're, like, within their own communities. (laughs) And this one picks up those same, like, over-the-top characters and then moves them into the suburbs. Uh, And that's something he would do pretty much for the rest of his career from this point on. Fucking with those Baltimore suburbs. (laughs) I mean, pretty much she just spirals to rock bottom and then she starts to put her life back together. Mm -hmm. Uh, She falls in love with Tab Hunter, who is this closeted um, Hollywood actor from Divine's like actual youth. So it was like a life goal of hers to make out with this man on the screen. That's incredible. Todd Tomorrow. Todd Tomorrow, which is a great name. I don't know. Like, you feel so bad for her because... Once she comes out of her alcoholism, she makes this awesome relationship with Todd tomorrow. But in reality, he's fucking her mom. And they're trying to get all this money from Francine and yeah. fuck her over. So it's just sort of like this roller coaster where it's like, oh, she's got it. She's got and then, back. Oh, people are shitting on her again. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie kind of ends at like her lowest point even. Right. But, but there's a little bit of hope at the end. It's but her kids aren't moment. like, you know, um, Dexter gets rehabilitated and he turns his shoe fetish into being an artist and <laughs> drawing like, you know, six-year-old drawings of feet. <laughs> and yes. um, Lulu, after she goes to the... <laughs> the nunnery or whatever because she's trying to get an abortion after she gets pregnant for her boyfriend Bobo. Played by Stiv Baters who is Ooh, yeah. almost a weirder Ooh, presence yeah. than Edith Massey. Didn't he yes. die like after like not long after that movie came yeah. out too? He is a strange looking man. Yeah. He's like a punk peewee? Yeah. Almost. But so she goes to this school for girls and they have like a night hayride in the rain. I mean just all kinds yes. of fucked up stuff and she just sort of becomes a... It reminds me a lot of Taffy from Female Trouble, how Taffy sort of becomes a Hare Krishna follower. Yes. And, you know, Lulu takes this turn sort of like that and she starts, like, crocheting things <laughs> and becomes, like, you know, a sweet girl in the end. Each character has, like, an arc, which is not that's something good. that's usual. Like, mm-hmm. some growth. I think the movie almost works better when things are good for Divine. Like... Just watching her push her little drink cart, like making drinks for her husband in her living room, (laughs) doing like the housewife routine. Also, when she falls in love with Tap Hunter later, he's this weird inverse of her porno theater husband. Instead of owning this like nasty triple X theater, he owns this like high scale drive-in where people wear tuxedos and like eat caviar, which is this bizarre uh, thing that does not exist in the real world. Kind of what I was saying earlier about, like, taking the freak show to the suburbs. Right. I think the movie is kind of, like, amazing in that way. Like, it almost works better when something awful is not happening. It's almost unexpected that things would be going well. And just watching Divine act like a housewife is, like, entertaining inherently. I also love how um, Divine being a housewife, whenever um, she has her pizza boy fantasy... Where the pizza boy sort of crawls through the window and she's like in her negligee. Yeah, she's so, masturbating. <laughs> yeah. 
that's kind of interesting how they played on that kind of you know housewives Cougar, and the pool Cougary, boy, yeah, I, boy. Yeah. it's very softcore porn there's a lot of like smoke machine yeah. stuff going on but she's got like a lot of sort of funny quotes in there like especially whenever she's like making love with todd tomorrow for the first time she's like be gentle like oh, no. <laughs> you know kind of throws in you yeah. know terms like that it's super funny I just like watching her grow up her own boob during the masturbation part. It's something really funny, (laughs) awkward about that. Uh, So speaking of taking the freak show to the suburbs, the next movie on the list was Hairspray. You walk into the museum for the Hairspray (laughs) exhibit and the crew of Rolling Elvi were holding a fake sock hop in the lobby. So there's a bunch of people in their like 50s and 60s dressed like hair hopper teenagers from the uh, American mm-hmm. Bandstand era. And I just walk in the, the <laughs> lobby and it's like, get to the floor, folks. It's pony time. And there's a bunch of ladies like doing the pony. They had like a Corny Collins impersonator <laughs> DJ. It was pretty cool, and they were playing, like, some cool local 50s tunes, like uh, Mother-in-Law, other cool stuff like that. That's the, actually the only one I was able to make for the series, but it was a, it was so yeah, much fun. Yeah, you went to the museum for that one, huh? So, this one, he claims, is his most subversive film, and it's kind of funny to me that, like, for Pink Flamingos, they had the Divine Impersonator and the Flamingos on the Lawn, and for this one, they had the crew of Rolling Elvi, because those are, like, his two most iconic films. Yeah. Uh, so they kind of, like, went out a lot for yeah. both of those. Waters claims that this is his most subversive film because it's a PG rating, and it's about, like, racism. Right. But it's, like, a very commercially successful work that mm. has its own stage musical and has sort of lived right. on past the film. But it still, it still, like, really pushes the envelope, but in a, in a very sneaky way. Do you hold this up as, like, one of his best movies? I know it's one of his most popular. I think so. Like, you know, as much as, like, this idiot emmy wants to be like well it's the most popular one and i don't want but it's one of my favorites yeah. i think it's it's so fucking funny it's you- funny without trying too hard too like mm-hmm. because you're sort of quickly put in the struggle and you feel her aspirations and you're like you know you, you want good things to happen for these people very right. quickly into it you like your heart is in it, but at the same time, it's super duper funny. It's funny in a way where it's um, just like facial expressions, yeah. and you know, like whenever uh, Debbie Harry like kind of looks out the window to see yeah. her daughter in the car yeah. and makes this like I can't even explain like the face she makes, but yeah. that's one of the funniest things in the whole movie yeah. to me. It's a lot um, of physical comedy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as soon as the opening credits, when you're watching these like teens dance and primp themselves before going on TV, it's already funny before you even hear any dialogue. But it's also funny that it's like a movie about cultural appropriation, which is not mm-hmm. something that you would see mm-hmm. a lot at the time. It's about these like white kids dancing on local television, this like Baltimore specific version of American Bandstand to black music, but no black people are actually allowed on the show except like once a month. And I don't know if the movie's politics all like line up 100% to like the 2010s, yeah. but it does feel progressive in that way and that mm-hmm. it is a fun movie that is like visibly funny and funny like over the top characters, yeah. but also like has a point of view and like a, a reason to exist. Yeah. I kind of like wish I could have been there for when it was released in theaters. There were probably a lot of like racists that went. Oh yeah, it would be really interesting kind of like to a, see that. yeah the first time. Like, around. hey, jokes on you, assholes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I was... thought this was gonna be a movie about you know just just <laughs> music and, and yeah, like how music used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So Ricky Lake stars as this teen who has two faults against her as far as like social popularity goes instantly. One is that she's like physically bigger than most of the girls on the American Bandstand show. Uh-huh. And the other is that she wants to integrate the show and actually allow the people who make these records and come up with these dances to like be on television and sort of like participate in this like art form that's sort of been like taken away from them. Uh, and it is like a really great hero. Like, she's woke. <laughs> you know, Tracy Turnblad is a woke woman. Like you were saying earlier, like it is someone that you instantly yeah. want to see succeed. She exudes like so much just confidence throughout the whole movie. And I don't know if it's just cause like, Rick- I don't know what it- if it would be any different if anyone but Ricky Lake would have played that Ooh, character. Yeah. There's something about Ricky Lake that's so She's relatable. Awesome. Yeah. So charismatic. Yeah. I do like that the movie is on her side in that way and like wants her to succeed, but also makes fun of the kids a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just like white people saving the day. Like, yes. Motormouth Maybell is this DJ who is kind of the tastemaker in the town and, like, discovers these records and promotes the big ones before they go up to the white show. And she is, like, a very big proponent in, like, getting the show integrated on top of the white teens as well. Mm-hmm. And also, the teens will, like, go a little too far. Like, they'll be making out with, like, black teens in mm-hmm. an alleyway and they'll be like, our skin is white, but our souls are black. And the movie's, like, kind of laughing in their face mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, y'all don't really like know exactly what you're discussing but i think it's like funny how balanced it is in that way Mm -hmm. which is not something you would really expect for something from the late 80s yes there's a lot of folks i think that don't know about the original movie or like know more about the the the, musical the musical and the remake and like all that it's interesting because like every time i mention anything john water is super like hairspray i've never seen the musical Till this day, I've, I've seen the musical. On, like, so I'm so unfamiliar with it, TV, but it's yeah. like flip flopped. It, it is kind of like Greece, though, in that way. Like Greece has all this like sexual politics and abortion mm-hmm. kind of stuff going on that the people more familiar with the movie version don't like. The more you get removed from it, the more like normalized it is. Yeah. When you would think that something from the '80s that's been updated would be more political now, but I can't really speak to it because I've never seen it. I've never seen the musical, but at that night at Noma, they had two um, of the cast members from Broadway oh, wow. that performed a few of the numbers on the dance floor. So it was pretty cool. It's like that I didn't one know that was at all. the yeah. best event. Man. This is the last time we see Divine for this series. Uh, this must have been her last collaboration with Waters before she died. Um, and you could totally tell like that something's off. Like I think. He was super, super unhealthy at this point. He, I mean, he was, like, so big to the point where you could tell, like, it was hard for him to kind of maneuver and He's stuff. still funny, though. Oh, still absolutely. On. Basically, Divine is redoing the housewife bit from Polyester, but making it a lot less glamorous. Mm-hmm. Even though, like, Francine is not necessarily a glamorous character. And this time, it's, like, no... She's in a moo all day. Yeah, she's in a moo <laughs> yeah. She's Like you said, she's bigger than usual. Uh-huh. And she's like, my diet pill's wearing off. She's like cranky all the time. I've got loads of ironing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is still inherently funny to watch Divine do like simple housework, like yeah. ironing and stuff. Right, right. Yeah. And her husband is Jerry Stiller, which the movie has two power couples. The good people would be mm-hmm. Jerry Stiller and Divine. And the evil power couple is... Sonny Bono and yes. Deborah Harry, which is just great stunt casting on both ends of that. Right. Absolutely. I don't know. I guess if, if there is a shame of them not playing Desperate Living or Female Trouble is that we didn't see more of her in her prime. Like you said, it's, it feels like it's kind of winding down. Like the energy's not quite there. Right. But I'd still really just enjoy watching her. I do like Hairspray Divine a lot. 
Also, this is the first one that uh, John Waters shows up in as a cameo. He plays this like cult deprogrammer mm-hmm. that's trying to save her friend who always has her like nasty candy fingers in her mouth. Yes. From, uh, Penny Pingleton yeah. is always permanently punished. I also like the uh, over-the-top beatniks that the kids uh, are like ready to rebel and break away from regular society. It's like Pia Zadora and Rico Kasich. Yeah. The guy from the cars, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, they're like more over the top than any like beatnik characters I've so ever seen. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it like one of my favorites from him, but it's a good movie. Yeah, I would say it would be in my like my top five. He's only got like ten. So. Right. So that's pretty <laughs> the high. Upper half. Pretty high yeah. yeah, in the upper half. Upper tier. Um, the next film on the list, they didn't have any kind of special thing going on, but it was for Crybaby. This is from 1990. And this is when we actually went and saw the exhibit in the museum. So the whole reason they were doing this John Waters retrospective is because he had several pieces donated by Arthur Rogers, who had a display on the lower floor what did he have i know he had the giant 3d sculpture of a bottle of poppers yeah the spilled popper (laughs) um and then my favorite was a bunch of like shitting scenes from movies that were all meshed together like it had the poop scene from dumb and dumber yeah um just kind of like all those great shit scenes all put together (laughs) yeah tastefully framed and they had they had that part of the gallery you know there was and I guess some of these movies are not, you know, no kids allowed. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, there's an option for walking past this. Where the Robert yeah, Maplethorpe there were, Yeah, was. like, you know, there's <laughs> like male the nudity, there's, you know. One of the Maplethorpes had, like, like a tail hanging out of someone's butt. So whip, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like a whip that was, yeah. the handle was uh, right in the ass. Up, up the butt. <laughs> I, I love him so much. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was really a visceral, like fun all different kinds of mediums exhibit yeah just all like prints it was called like pride of place i don't know if that meant it was all queer artists it kind of felt like it might have been it's fun well my friend um that i went to see hairspray with he's a security guy at the museum and he's he was telling me like so many times he just like watches these like older women kind of like go towards that corner and he'll be like man like think twice and then just kind of like, and if he can't catch them, just like watch them make that really surprised look on their face. And they're like, all right, just kind of get out of there. I know that uh, he's had, Waters has had several shows at Rogers Gallery that's just movie stills. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like that's what those pieces were from, right? Like, I think so. Besides the poppers. Definitely the giant spilled poppers was the funniest thing to me. Oh, Totally. I can't remember what the other movie stills were. There were, like, people speaking famous movie lines in Pig Latin was Yeah, one. and you have to, like, kind of say it together to, like, Get make it. out what it means. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was this one, it was very David Lynchian, where it was just stills of movie curtains, mm-hmm. like theater curtains yeah. from different movies. Um, that was kind of interesting as well, but definitely not as attention-grabbing as people taking a shit in various films or a giant bottle of poppers. If I <laughs> was a wealthy woman, that would be one of the first pieces of art that I would like to purchase. So maybe this one didn't have any like gimmicks, but there were a couple things that put me into finding relevance in Crybaby playing in New Orleans. Uh, one was that CC discovered that Hatchet Face, who is like kind of the standout divine type character. Yeah. Uh, she was from New Orleans. Oh, really? Which I did not know. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Also, this just happened to be the week when we were like all afraid that we might be going to nuclear war with North Korea at any second. Yes. Uh... <laughs> and uh, one of the opening gags of the film is uh, that dumb 
duck and cover. The atom bomb yeah. drill. Yeah. So those were kind of like relevant for the time when we were watching it. But this is, you know, pre-monstrous villain Johnny Depp mm-hmm. playing this Such a, yeah. huge asshole in real life. But this is God, when we so all thought he was cute. Movie, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Why you had to be such a dick? So this is him playing a rebel without a cause, a wild one type character where he's a biker who does crimes to honor his dead parents who were executed for being lifelong criminals. But he doesn't want to commit these crimes. He just wants to honor them. So he cries for all the bad things he has to do. A single tear. Yeah. Sacrifices he must make. Uh, You know, I think that out of every John Waters movie, this one always makes me laugh the most. I think this is the funniest one. I will say this one is the one that benefited the most besides maybe Pink Flamingos as far as like seeing it with a crowd. Yeah. Like, it was a really raucous, yeah. Probably a good fun experience. Time. I wish, yeah. wish I would have been there. The only thing I do not like so much is the musical numbers. I don't think the music is good. No, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. I liked some of the um the white bread ones with the squares, like the Mr. Sandman. <laughs> yeah. I thought that one was like funny as shit but yeah like the weird um he's trying to do elvis king crybaby yeah he's trying to do like jailhouse rock style elvis and i don't know if it necessarily works the jailhouse um, song is especially cringeworthy i feel like that's the worst musical number in the whole movie really yeah, <laughs> it looks good i'm not saying it, it's it's well shot it's yeah. very well this whole movie i feel like is adds to the humor like even like when he does like the his first musical number and his like legs go like elvis limp <laughs> i mean god that's one of the fucking funniest parts in there like it's almost it just makes it a little funnier and which jailhouse song? Because there's two. There's the the worst well, one. Oh, sorry, where they're in the bunks. Where they're in the, the bunks. The crying one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that they're one both bad. I think the one where bad, he's yeah. doing the uh, license plates is Dancing like even worse. Book, yeah. I like the one where um, <laughs> Stamp room. the please, Mr. Gentleman, let my man go free. No. I like whenever <laughs> they're doing the sexy dances between the glass. Oh yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it's just the the stuff that no, comes this, along with it. The is staging really is fun. great. It's just the music is not good to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. Want the sound? Uh, no, I'd want the soundtrack. <laughs> but I have shit taste in music. I mean, as far as like staging goes, like I know I mentioned the elaborate shot at the beginning of Polyester. There's one shot in here I think is like the most elaborate thing he's ever done in his career. Basically, this movie is like a war between the squares and the drapes, which is like hot rodder, like uh, leather jackets, slick back hair kind right. of guys like pompadours and stuff and the squares like the town suburb people interrupt one of their parties by setting crybaby's motorbike on fire Mm -hmm. and sort of crashing it into their concert yeah and there's a shot where the camera's point of view is from the flaming motorcycle as it's going through the crowd (laughs) yeah and that just felt like way more complicated than any like john water shot i've ever seen (laughs) pre-gopro like where did that come from (laughs) the original gopro there's there's some really beautiful objects that get destroyed in john water's movies like the trailer and pink flamingo and this motorcycle and like i feel like he gets right back on and it's fine oh yeah it's charred and like just completely wrecked yeah it doesn't actually explode or anything he gets right back on it yeah and he just starts it up which I mean kind of points to how these movies sort of exist outside of reality it's this like heightened cartoon world that they live in Um, I think what's important about this one and Hairspray earlier we were talking about them moving the freak show to the suburbs I think what these two films do together is they make the suburbs the villain. Like, yes. Earlier in, in the, his career, you'd see these people sort of doing this monstrous stuff like shoplifting and setting things on fire. Right. But here, 
It's these racist assholes that live in the suburbs, and they're supposed to be the normal, like, everyday people, and they're the ones, like, making sure these kids in the 50s and 60s have, like, a terrible time, when they're just, they're called teenage delinquents because they're yeah. just being themselves. Living their truths. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Live your truth. But yeah, like, I feel like suburbia is the monster in these two films. Absolutely. And I think that there's a transition for the grandmother character, Mm -hmm. you know, where she's like, you can't be with these people. And then she's like, wait, you mean he can sing? And like, she's, she's totally won over by the art, but at first it's like, (laughs) she's the... What would happen if he wouldn't be a good singer? Yeah, exactly. Like, because she sees, she sees worth in the performance or whatever it totally changes right. her it's like it speaks it speaks to the power of art to change you at any age yeah it's, it's interesting also what's cool about crybaby for me is um it's like the second film where john waters basically snatches patty Hearst to be like one of his regulars because she was yes. in um serial mom. serial mom at the end but she's wanda's mom in crybaby and yeah, she's he, funny as shit he really she's gets great. into stunt casting in these later films mm-hmm. like ricky lake's back Right. Uh, you get to see Iggy Pop bathing in a bucket. Which oh, is, that's wonderful. It's a beautiful yeah. image. Yeah. Um, Try Donahue. <laughs> Tracy Lords is fucking, like, yeah. perfect in this movie. Like, yeah. she has that whole, like, Betty look down yeah. with, like, the straight cut across bangs, leather jacket, and then... The snarl. The tight skirt that ends, like, mid-calf. The uh, neck scarf to hide the hickeys. <laughs> like, that kind of look. Uh, and yeah. yeah, I feel like Patty Hearst is in every movie from mm-hmm. this point to the end of his career. Yeah. What was she in uh, Dirty Shame? I can't remember. I don't think she was, but she was in Cecil B. Demented, and she was in Pecker. Yeah. And if there's a plot in this film, it's like watching a square sort of go into this world of the drapes. They call her a scrape for being half and half. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I don't remember the actress who plays her. I don't know if I've seen her in anything else. But Mm-mm. basically she starts the film like drawing this line between quote unquote bad girls and good girls. And she's like, I'm so tired of being good. And she gets a bad girl beauty makeover. And you sort of <laughs> like get to know that these characters are actually the heroes and like the townspeople that give them shit by basically sending them to jail for doing nothing are the ones that having a party yeah what i thought was like really weird how they were sort of seen as more of the racially accepting group but then there's like confederate flags everywhere it's kind of crazy how Baltimore is treated like it's Southern and has like that Confederate. I didn't know well, that, that even so, existed. So in Maryland had slavery during the Civil War. The Mason-Dixon line runs through Maryland, so people people in like Baltimore were, like are referred to by people way northern as like Southerners. And That's I didn't I didn't fully hmm. appreciate that until I met my friend Martha, who's from Baltimore. I had heard the accents in the movies, but I was like, I don't know anybody that talks like that. Like that's not people don't talk like that anymore. I think people say warder. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite delivery in any of his movies, and I think this is like we were saying earlier, like the accents are just naturally funny because he has non-actors talking this weird cadence. Like it's it's almost like everything shouted. But I love in a dirty shame. There's this guy who goes up to the counter at a convenience store, and there's a movie about like a sex virus where like people like become horny. And he just walks up to the counter and he goes, I'm looking forward to get blowed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I remember that part. Uh, What a joyful movie. I I think that one is like his most underrated. That's uh, a happy movie right there. Mm -hmm. And that's another one where like the freaks are like sort of like lauded. Celebrated, absolutely. I do appreciate also that in this one he still finds ways to be gross even though it's not the over the top nasty. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it's mostly just in the wet sounds of like teenagers making out. Or oh the, yeah, the, the over-the-top making out is really, really funny. Or the licking of the tear. Ugh. I don't know why that goes. Oh, and me like where she's most. like like yeah, like collecting her tears and then she like drinks her tears. Oh, that's so gross. Like, gets off and it's all salty. I find that um, so much grosser than divine eating shit. Like just the mm-hmm. the swapping of like fluids in yeah. those scenes. The sounds that he gets in there are just so nasty. Um, it makes you squirm. Like, it's a, it's a very squirmy... <laughs> and he's, like, talking about... The confession about his parents being, like, executed comes yeah. when they're, like, making out. So like Alphabet bomber. <laughs> and he, like, rips... Oh, that's my favorite part, when he rips open his shirt and there's the electric tattoo, yeah. ta- chair tattoo in his chest. Yeah. Jesus, yes. I wonder how many people have gotten that copycat tattoo. There's also one more Russ Meyer <laughs> homage in this movie in the pinup photographer who like mm-hmm. sort of preys on these yes, that, yeah, that's <laughs> But yeah, he's like a nudie cutie like pinup photographer and like Tracy Lords gets to tell him like beat it creep. Right. Uh, which is like a really iconic line. And I think something that's interesting too is like we were talking earlier about this being like early for punk. At least it was in the early seventies when he was doing these. I think what he's showing you is that this, like, rock and roller outsider thing has, like, always been around. Yeah. By going to the 60s for Hairspray and then the 50s for Crybaby, he's, like, kind of showing this lineage of, like, outsider punks. Um, and it's multi-generational. Culture. Yeah, I like that there's their grandparents caring for these kids and that there's, like, all, kind of all ages represented. Mm-hmm. I can see how he was probably really stoked about making this movie because a lot of the music he uses in all of his films are, like, from that era. Yeah. So he actually got to, like make a film from that era. I mean, Hairspray was kind of more 60s, where this is more like 50s. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. This is definitely him looking back to his youth, right? There's like Mm -hmm. some Baltimore that's Mm -hmm. gone that he remembers. He even has like little kid characters that are maybe not his point of view, but at least like representative of like how old he would have been at the time. Yeah, they're true. The kids are so cute. Um, And as far as like self-examination goes, you can't get much more navel-gazing than when he gets with his next two films. Well, at least the next one they played here, uh, Pecker from 1998. This is about a Baltimore photographer that documents the weirdos of his town and then sort of becomes the toast of big city elites. And it's kind of like John Waters sort of like making a loose biographical film about what he does with his art, Mm -hmm. which he would continue even more so with Cecil B. Demented. This one was free uh, that day because it was over 95 degrees outside. And apparently Noma, any day... That it's over 95 degrees, you're, like, allowed in for free. I think, like, Ogden also, like... Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool thing that these public places are doing. I gotta admit, like, this late 90s era of John Waters, this is, like, my least favorite time of his career. These two self-introspective flicks. I think this one is slightly better than Cecil B. Demented. And that one's about, like, rogue filmmaking, which, obviously, that would fit in with his career. But, I don't know. How do y'all feel about this one? It's not one of my favorites. Um, I mean, it's not as good as any of the others we talked about but i think it still has like its humor the guy that edward furlong mm-hmm. um he's super funny in here so it's like christina ricci and patty um, hearst is back and patty hearst is there cindy sherman plays herself cindy sherman makes an appearance that's very weird it's important it was funny to me because it just reminded me of um just the pain in the ass high school kid that has the camera and just keeps taking pictures yes. and uh, but in a more in a less obnoxious way I mean, I like that he sort of feels like he has more of a point in this part part of his career. Yeah. Like, if polyester and... Not polyester. Maybe that one, too, because they have the protesters. They're like, we hate filth outside the porno theater. Uh-huh, yeah. But more so with Hairspray and Crybaby, he's talking about, like, suburban evil and, like, uptight 
Christian like censorship. Um, and this one, he's more attacking big city elite people like hipsters yeah it's much. a different it's right. a different chance to like satire a different group and the main point of the movie at the end basically edward furlong's character gets popular in new york by shooting these people that are sort of like ironically being celebrated mm-hmm. and then at the end he gets uh the new york city art gallery people to come to baltimore and baltimore laughs at them for being like ridiculous right and the end of the movie like the the big like point of it is just like death to irony is what people are yelling mm-hmm. I think a lot of people look at him as, like, an ironic filmmaker when he, like, loves these characters so much. Like, it's a genuine thing that he's doing. Uh, and this is him sort of, like, taking his audience to task. Like, I feel like a lot of people laughing at the characters instead of with them. Like, this is him sort of, like, like, no, fuck that. Like, you're supposed to love these people as much as I do. He is uncredited as the pervert on the phone in this movie. Oh, uh, yeah. He plays, like, this um, Howard Stern type, like, shock jock who, like, calls oh. Christina Ricci uh, John Waters... <laughs> But it's like, yeah, just for a second. I love how funny she was in there with, like, how she's so passionate about her laundromat job. Well, I think the funny thing about the movie is that everyone has this, like, sitcom kind of characterization where they only have one trait. So, like, she only talks about laundromats. Uh, Pecker's mother only talks about clothing the homeless. (laughs) Fashion. Uh, Pecker obviously only takes photographs. Uh, the mother is obsessed with this ventriloquist doll of the Virgin Mary. Full of grace. And his dad is obsessed with pubic hair. He has this, like, <laughs> sort of moral tirade against right, pubic like, hair. No pubic hair and alcohol. And the sisters, one of them is um, addicted to candy. And well, the other one Chrissy. is obsessed with gay men. Yeah. Like, she works at a gay bar and hosts, like, Mr. Rough Trade Baltimore competitions. Yes. So yeah, everyone has like this very narrow focus. Well, the obs- well, that's the thing. Like one of the big John Waters quotes is like, "Life's nothing if you're not obsessed," and he really like brings that out with each of these characters. They they have like those obsessions you just talked about. Yeah, and uh, Warren Beatty from Empire Records, he's like obsessed with shoplifting. Like shoplifting is his right. whole life. One thing I will say, like about seeing this movie, that kind of soured me on it too, was the audience for that day was like very off to me. Hmm. Like we were talking about the applause during Pink Flamingos during like mm-hmm. some of like the more outlandish like queer moments mm-hmm. this one was a lot older crowd um, it was the only one that had walkouts besides Pink Flamingos despite it not being a shocking film also they were laughing at stuff that wasn't really funny and then I was the only one laughing like a fucking lunatic during the uh, like rough trade jokes at the gay bar like, the audience just felt, like, skewed in this weird old people way. Like, Chrissy ate too much candy. They're like, oh, no! She ate too much candy! <laughs> or they'd be, like, repeating jokes out loud. It was just a weird crowd. So what were some of the walkout moments that you remember? I think it was just, like, 20 minutes in. Like, as soon as people started getting the vibe of the film, they're like, oh, I'm not watching this. This is bad. It's so weird. Yeah. Especially weird for, like, a free movie in the middle of the A John Waters movie. It's like, what are you expecting to go in and see? Yeah. I never, I'll never understand why people still do that. But, I don't know. It's just, like, weird stuff that just didn't land. Like, at his art gallery show in New York, uh, one of the critics calls his work uh, a humane Diane Arbus. And that <laughs> got a huge laugh out of me. And I was the only one laughing in the theater. It just felt, like, uh-huh. isolating. So I don't know. I feel like at a certain point in his career, like maybe starting with Polyester, especially after that, he decided like, we don't make bad movies anymore. Uh, We make like real comedies. Mm -hmm. And I guess some of that got assimilated into the popular culture through like the Farley brothers and all kinds of over the top raunch, like something Mm -hmm. about Mary, especially uh, to the point where this just doesn't feel transgressive in any way anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a dirty shame gets a little bit of it back, which might be why I like that one a lot, Mm -hmm. but it feels very John Waters 
it just doesn't feel very like representative of, of him. I don't know who else could have made it, but I also don't think it's like representative of like his best work. I feel like he had like total control of it almost. I mean, I know he, but he did, but it, it doesn't feel like it's. Well, you only have control in the fact that only certain projects get funding. Like True. he refuses to do Kickstarter crowdfunding type stuff to get his fruitcake. He wants to make one last film that's like a gay Christmas movie, and he refuses to take crowdfunding money off of it. Because huh. he wants to do the old style getting like a mid-budget comedy made, and people don't really make those anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially not movies like his that have sort of a limited appeal. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it's just kind of weird how this is sort of like a falling off for him, for me. It made $2 million, Pecker did. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it, it took $6 million to make that movie, and it's just... Movies like that, I'm, like, surprised. Like, why did it take that much money to make? I mean, movies just take money, too. Like, like the 90s? I don't know. Maybe yeah. I don't know enough about that. There was a big, like, kind of star-studded cast. I wonder if that had anything yeah. to do with it. There was a lot of big names. I'm, I'm making it sound more normal than it is, too, because there's, like, a lot of strip club stuff in this movie is pretty out there. I really liked the, um, the lesbian stripper, where she's, like, they've got these guys, like, oogling over her, and she's just, like, basically, like... What are you looking at? Slapping her face and being like, what the fuck are you looking at? Yeah. Like, being super... For me. <laughs> and then there's the uh, gay strip club called Fudge Palace. The Fudge Palace. Where you can do anything except teabag. No teabagging at the Fudge Palace. And I think that one might be a slight nod to Corner Pocket because all the men right. um, dance in yeah. tidy whities. A lot of teabagging. And I know every time he comes to New Orleans, he usually pops up at Corner right. Pocket. I think the gay content in the movie is really good. I like right. seeing that. But I, I don't know. It just felt like almost like he was losing passion for doing it. And I feel like the dirty shame feels like more him getting like back into it. Right. I will say that I'm making it sound like his career is sort of winding down, but it's really not. Like, right. he does these quote unquote spoken word like lecture tours, but really they're just like stand up comedy routines. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I saw him with CC doing his Christmas one. Yeah. And we actually sat in the same bar with him across the street. And we're, like, too nervous to go up and talk to him. <laughs> I remember at the end of that show, like, our faces were so sore from, like, laughing so much. Yeah. It, he's just so, so, nice. so funny in general. Ugh. I just wish he would take some of my money to make one more movie. I mean, if his career ends at a dirty shame... We want shame, fruitcake. <laughs> yeah, I want fruitcake. I mean, if, it, if his career does end at a dirty shame, that's not that bad of a note to lean on. I, I do think that movie's mm-hmm. very good. Right. Yeah. But it's, he still has so much more, like, life and I think ideas in him. Capable of so much more right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, he's sure. he's in his early seventies and he still hitchhikes. Like <laughs> he's he's got energy. Like mm-hmm. he just wrote that book, Carsick, was his last book. Right. And I guess on top of the books and the lectures and things like that, he's he's keeping himself entertained and busy. It's just I really want my favorite filmmaker to make one more movie. Like that's not it's not oh, too no. greedy, is it? No. <laughs> Not at all. Do y'all have anything else to say just about the general programming of this? Like, I want to do more John Waters episodes on the show where we, like, get into, like, our more favorite films of his career. But, like, what do you think they were thinking about Pink Flamingos, Polyester, Hairspray, Crybaby, Pecker? Like, what do you think about that programming choice? I mean, they've got all the different, like, sort of John Water eras where you've got his first popular super shocking film that kind of put him on the map and then it moves over to polyester where he's starting to transition more into like mainstream film and then to hairspray which was like his big hit i kind of like thought like what brought why go from like crybaby to pecker because it doesn't seem like what's most out of place and i don't know why cecil b demand could be 
I mean, Cecily to Men is a worse movie, in my opinion, so. <laughs> I but, mean, if they were going to do one more instead of Pecker, I would have said Dirty Shame. Because you get enough of his, like, mainstream career out of Crybaby and Hairspray. But Pecker almost makes a good programming choice just in the fact that this was in an art museum. And it's a movie about uh, yeah. art galleries. Yeah, right. yeah, Boom. That. That's it. That's that's definitely why they We get you, that. Noma. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still really disappointed why... I mean, I get why they wouldn't play maybe Desperate Living. Because yeah. it's a divineless feature. But I really... I'm so weirded out why Female Troubles not, wasn't in there. Because yeah. I think that's one of the more artsier yeah. movies that he made. But yeah, I think like that's my favorite. My favorite divine is uh, Dawn Davenport. Yeah. But my favorite movie with divine would be Polyester. Okay. I really like the filthy like feminist Mortville aesthetic in Desperate Living. Just, yeah, like, it's the town. Dirty or, well, I don't know what you mean. The community <laughs> that they that they go to is is like one of my favorite worlds. Yeah, yeah. Waters. It's also awesome how like Mink Stoll is like the star because she's real, super funny. She's always and that was like her. She's time the only shine. actor that was in all five of these. Yeah, which is yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, Desperate Living, besides Pink Flamingos, was the only one I had seen on the big screen before Ooh. with the crowd. It wasn't that sad to me that I didn't get to see that big because I've done that before. These other four, uh, Crybaby, Hairspray, Polyester, and Pecker, I had never seen with a crowd before. So I guess that was like basically like the most enriching part of going to see these. It's not how I would have programmed it because you know everyone has their own personal picks. Yeah. But I, d- I do think that these films are benefited with like a social environment. And the most fun I ever have watching yes. Pink Flamingos is with like as many people as possible. Absolutely. I'd like to experience that. But I was thinking about this when I was like kind of rewatching these movies for this podcast episode. How I feel like the way that these films are made, he's able to sort of like create these very personal relationships with the viewers. Where I feel like when I watch like Hairspray or when I watch Crybaby or whatever, there are certain things that I feel more connected to than like other people I'm watching it with. And there are certain things that they. Um, sort of gravitate to a little more that I'm like that's not really that funny to me but there are certain things where I'm like that's like definitely my style of humor like how did he know that I would think that was so funny (laughs) like he made this shit for me but yeah it's kind of cool how he's able to sort of get into everybody because he does have a very very peculiar and particular style of humor yeah that only certain people get but then a lot of other people do kind of like his movies i've never met they a person. laugh along the way even though yeah. they're not like i don't really like like the, yeah like they don't get, get like the facial expressions yeah. the weird terminology that's used and but we're far from alone from being the people who think that he's, like, the greatest. Like, right. some people plug into it very hard. I don't know what my sense of humor, or even the way I look at bad movies, the way people call them bad movies. Right. Like, the way I watch all this genre stuff, I don't know if I would be the same person without having seen, like, Pink Flamingos in high school or whatever else. Like, it's very important to, like, my whole understanding of art. And that's why we started the Divine Mardi Gras crew. It's, it's uh, a great way to, like, honor... The person that means a lot to us in that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to see us at Mardi Gras, look for the little gaggle of divines carrying around a flamingo on a pole uh, in the French Quarter. <laughs> it's really big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I kind of made the pole a little too big. but <laughs> 10 feet? <laughs> yeah. And if you want to catch anything else on the website, we are talking about Soderbergh's Schizopolis all this month. And next episode, we're going to be talking about one of Britney's other favorite forms of media, which is Bridget Jones movies. Woo! Wow. Kind of like a whiplash. Uh, <laughs> those, yeah, I was just saying those back to back. The last episode, we talked about William Freakin movies. 
So going from that to Waters to Bridget Jones really does feel like a huge, like, shift in tone. But I feel like they're both, like, series that you can really get into. Like, you go heavy in John Waters if you like it, and you go heavy in Bridget Jones if you like it. I'm I'm a newbie, so you're gonna have to, like, hold my hand through it. But we'll come back with y'all in a couple weeks with that episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.